Welcome to Uncharted Careers. I'm Courtney Hartman, and I talk with guests each week about their career paths to give listeners an insider look into different industries, how folks have made decisions in their careers, and we'll explore what each guest has learned along the way. I'm on a mission to share knowledge that is only learned in the field outside of a classroom. Join me to find inspiration for your own career. Today, I'm joined by my friend and former colleague, Chris Young, or CY. He and I worked together in customer service 10 years ago at a software company called Zerve that did ticketing for recurring events like walking food tours, Segway tours, boat cruises. So he started as a supervisor in customer service there and really became a leader in that space. And then he made the move to product management during our shared four years at Zerve. And he since had a super successful career leading product teams at technology companies. So I'm really excited to dig in. So thanks so much for chatting with me today, CY. Thanks, Courtney. I'm excited to be here. Good. And I know, and I know, we've already had I think Joe and maybe Bob on the show. Yep, that's so right. So I'll, I'll try to. If folks have listened to some of the previous episodes, I'll be hopefully be able to give a little bit of context in terms of how great those two are. So you'll probably hear me referring to some conversations with those two. Yeah, they're big shoes to fill. Well, I know you recently shared some news about a big move that you made. So let's start there. Can you tell me about where your career has most recently taken you? Absolutely. And I think it'll probably weave into a little bit of the, what we talk about over the next couple of next 20 or 30 minutes. So I just recently announced that I am joining Redesign Health as a co-founder and the head of product engineering for one of their stealth portfolio companies. Redesign Health is a little bit different than, say, an incubator or a venture capital company where you do incubating within there. They kind of go through and look at really viable business models and select what they think can be really successful businesses. And once they've really narrowed in on an area where they think there's the opportunity for success, they look for people with background that can help be the starting founding team for that company and really build it out from employees. I'm employee two. I've joined with my CEO and co-founder. Um, and kind of come in and, and, and join that people who have expertise in similar areas in healthcare. So that's kind of where I've been spending my past five years has been in the health tech space. It's kind of where I've, I've been in product, but I found a home in product within health tech. And it's where I'm really passionate about and I, I'm really excited to be able to kind of build something from the ground up. Yeah, that's super cool. So when you were deciding what to do next, what was kind of going into your decision making process? What were you looking for? So that's a really good question. And I think it I'll take it back a little bit in terms of my career growth and kind of my trajectory that really informed it. So Courtney mentioned it up front, but we both started at Zerve on the customer service team. That really got me the opportunity to learn the ins and outs and the operations of how a tech company, a tech startup was operating. Courtney went into a different round and kind of went into account management. I got the opportunity to join their product team. Uh, which was really great. It was something I didn't really know about prior to joining Zerve. I kind of knew about tech. I knew about engineering, but I didn't really understand what product management is. And so I got that opportunity. And for anyone who's ever worked with me, I have pretty passionate beliefs in terms of how I think a company should operate, the approach you should be taking, how you should be treating your people. And I was pretty ambitious, I'd say, over the past 10 years in terms of I would be at startups and for anyone who's not been at a startup, there's kind of really high highs and really low lows. And as you're going up and through that, you always kind of think like, well, when I'm at that level and I'm a director or a VP or a C-suite, I have the ability to kind of change that. But I think what I slowly realized was in my last company, I made it to the role of chief product officer. But at the end of the day, you're, you can still really only control a small portion of things. Even if you're, if you're not the founder, 
your DNA and your blueprint really isn't all over that. And I think one thing that was really important to me and where I was constantly feeling frustrated was I want to help kind of put that DNA of how I think a company should operate and kind of run from the ground floor up. So that was what really prompted me to make the move about five, six months ago as I started to look. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk more about just what product management is and what that looks like for you? Um, There are definitely some folks that just aren't super familiar with technology and product and what that even entails. Yeah, absolutely. So I think kind of the old way of explaining product management is you think of a Venn diagram and at a tech company, you think of a Venn diagram as where is the intersection of three circles? And really, for those companies, it's really usually marketing, engineering, tech, and like the business strategy and kind of product sits at the intersection of that. And so the way I always like to explain it to my team is they sit at a very unique intersection of the company because they're interacting more so with anybody on what is it that the company should be investing in? How do we make sure what you're building suits the needs of, it, uh, of the end user? So I work in B2B SaaS. So our companies tend to normally be like in healthcare, large hospital systems, primary care, payers, risk-bearing entities. But the easiest example that I use for my mom is basically my mom likes to use Facebook. And so I explained to her the concept of, say, the like button or any new feature that kind of Facebook rolled out. And I'm trying to really explain it to someone who's not super familiar with tech. There's a team of product managers that are really responsible with driving certain user behaviors that drive business outcomes. And the product management team is really deciding the what to, kind of what is it that they're going to build and then work really closely with the engineering teams to then decide how that's going to get built. Yeah, that's super helpful. When you were at Serve and you know we were working together in customer service, what really attracted you to product? What were your goals with moving into that realm back then? So one, I got to know the product really well because we were in customer service. We had enforces very like a very interesting business model because it was a two-sided marketplace where you had the kind of the buyers, the B2B to C, the consumer aspect, but we were also doing the B2B aspect. We were helping these small businesses support their entrepreneurial entrepreneurial efforts. So we got to know really kind of the back end software as well as the front end consumer facing side of it. And so you'd understand kind of where the pain points are, where you're trying to kind of drive up features that can make the lives easier for the people that we were supporting. And that was really interesting to me of someone getting on the phone with me and saying, you know, it'd be a lot easier if your software did this and understanding really not just what they're asking for, but why they're asking for it. And that's really where really good product managers get deep into it is they understand why someone is asking for a piece of functionality. So as an example from the Zurb days, it's kind of like someone's looking to run a report based off of what are the most popular time of day that their trips are running because they have a limited inventory. They want to make sure that they're maximizing when their ticket sales can be run. How does Zurb then turn that around and make it into a piece of functionality that can help them really maximize their revenue? So that was, I think, the one part was understanding the problems of our customers was really cool and being able to figure out how we could solve for it. And two, uh, there was our, at the time, head of product, um, soon, like then eventually CEO, was someone who, even when I was in customer service, a guy named Chris Smith, um, he was fantastic and someone who I learned a lot from and I really liked talking to, even when he wasn't my direct boss. And the opportunity to learn from him and kind of understand that was really, really appealing to me. And you've had such a prolific career in products and serve um, over the past, what, eight years. 
Can you talk more about what a product organization looks like? What are the roles? I know in your most recent role, you were chief product officer. What did your team look like? Yep. So uh, for my team, usually what it'll look at and really decides, really depends on the size of the company. So for us, for example, we were at its biggest, we were around 75 employees. So you'll have kind of the EPD, which is one side of the business. It's engineering, product, and design. At Force, I oversaw product and design. So on the product team, I had a couple of different areas. I had the product managers. Those are the folks that were actually in the weeds, working with our customers, understanding what functionality and features we should be building. I also had a design team uh, who reported into me. The design team was really figuring out what should the look and feel and the experience for the users who are, who are using both as patients and providers. What are they using and what does that look like and making sure that it's a really appealing and kind of empathetic user experience. And then it's really developed, really relevant to the specific business model. So on our team, I also had a bunch of data analysts reported into me, as well as a couple, every once in a while, we had, we'd have a project management team that reported into me based off of the integrations that we would do into other tech stacks. We also work really, really closely, and I would say attach at the hip with engineering teams. So the folks who are actually building it, I did not oversee the engineering team, but I had a very, very close relationship with our chief technology officer. And when you're looking to build out your product teams, what sort of characteristics or even specific skills are you looking for as you interview folks and determine if they're going to be a good fit to join your team? So I, that's a great question. So I tend to lean towards wanting to be at startups Mm -hmm. and places where you're truly building things. So first off, there's a couple of baseline things that exist. Um, You'll hear very frequently that empathy is super important for product managers Empathy matters because you need to, kind of what I just hinted at with the design, your job at the end of the day is to understand a problem. And more often than not, in the B2B space, it's someone's workflow that you're trying to improve. You need to be deeply understanding of that, but not also for your clients, but also for your internal team. Um, they're the ones, you're most likely not the most customer-facing team. So there, there's usually a client success manager or a customer success manager who's the one providing that service, helping to support and grow that account who's also dealing with maybe some frustrations or some things that they would like to see within the product. And so being empathetic is really kind of the baseline, most important thing from a soft skill. I think from a hard skill perspective, the ability to do like be data oriented and data driven in terms of how you're making decisions and understanding that, being able to weave that into storytelling. Storytelling is incredibly important, I think, for product managers. And it's something that some folks talk about, I tend to emphasize, I think, an index on a little bit more than some others because influence is really key for a product manager. You don't really have any authority if you are an individual contributor product manager and you have a lot of people coming to you. And more often than not, you have an influx of requests that come to you. You are not going to be able to build everything. And so one of the biggest challenges for a product manager is that they have to say no probably for every time they get to say yes, the product manager has to say no probably 20 times. Mm-hmm. And that does that can very easily make your relationship with folks in the company or your customers strained because you have to give bad news. And so your ability to communicate why it is that you're explaining that, tying it back to company strategy and to be able to effectively communicate is really, really key. And also being incredibly collaborative. So really indexing on how is their ability to collaborate and how can they communicate with folks uh, because more often than not, the the product manager is uh, kind of grouping all these people together and driving a project forward, but they're not the one that's doing a lot of the work. Either the designers are designing it, 
the engineers are building it. So it's really a collaborative team effort. And if you can't be a really effective collaborator, you're going to fail. Yeah. And I really like that you bring up storytelling. I think that's so important in product, in sales, in account management, in so many different parts of an organization. And I think that point is lost a little bit. I'm curious if you have any tips or if you could share how you look to present stories and weave them through your conversations that you have both internally and with clients. So I stole this and I don't know who I stole it from, but I think it works really, really well. Um, and there's a lot of really popular product management philosophies and product strategy philosophies out of there. There's a lot of good frameworks too. I think sometimes people try to just like brute apply them and they don't realize kind of like some flexibility in terms of, okay, well, some aspects are going to work and some aren't. For me, I think it's an overarching strategy of treat, and I hinted at this earlier, treat everybody like a client. And when I say treat everybody a client, it's not just would you speak differently to a client than you would to a coworker in a tight conversation? I say treat everyone like a client because when you're talking to a client, they normal, you normally understand what their wants and needs are. And you are, if you're a customer success manager, if you're a salesperson, if you're a marketer, you're probably trying to craft your message based off of what it is that they care about. If you try to communicate to every single person the exact same way from an engineer to a designer to a customer success manager, to a salesperson, to a marketer, to the executive team, or to the customers, you're not going to be successful. And so that's kind of the way that I always try to craft that with folks is, who's your audience? Who are you talking to? And if you can really be mindful and deeply understand your audience, you're going to do a much better job of storytelling. And if you don't understand your audience as a product manager, you need to take a little bit of a step back because that is a core responsibility of your job. Those are your stakeholders and stakeholder People call it stakeholder management. I don't love that philosophy. It's more like stakeholder collaboration. You can't be an effective collaborator. So you're going to pick up on a lot of common themes and words that I use. That's also a thing with product management is you repeat yourself a lot. And that's okay. Uh, because what you have to remember is you're super focused on what's... As a product manager, you know something's coming six months from now. But if you're client-facing, you're worried about what's happening tomorrow. And it's sometimes there's a little bit of a kind of schism that exists there because you're trying to sell the future and someone the future isn't helpful when someone has a problem right in front of their face. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, you almost have to speak different languages if you're speaking with a development team versus you're speaking with the account managers or you're speaking with account executives that are actually going to be selling the product. So you need to be well-versed in all of their languages in order to best communicate with each of them. I really like that. Yes. Uh, I think that's been one of the big things that I learned as I became more of a people manager also uh, is because I probably called myself doing that when I was in IC, when I was an individual contributor, but then it's always a lot easier to edit than create. So when you're watching other folks do it, it's really helpful because then you realize some trends and some habits and where things are kind of breaking. And it's a lot easier than to be able to kind of go in and put a top-down approach to it that helps drive better alignment. Yeah. Well, taking it back a little bit, even before Zerve, what did you want to do when you were growing up? Did you have any sort of direction where you've made a pivot over time? Or what did that look like when you were making decisions early on? Uh, yeah, so I wanted to be a lawyer okay. when I was a little kid. Uh, that's probably the worst possible answer that a little kid could ever give. But for some reason, I love arguing. Uh, and I've always been a big person who kind of I'll occasionally enjoy taking a contrarian viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always been the way that I've been. I think a little bit of that is probably being uh, 
youngest child syndrome as well. <laughs> um, I think you tend to see that in the youngest where they're kind of always looking to pick a fight. Mm -hmm. And so something in getting into debating and arguing is something that I really always enjoy. And I thought that, uh, What's, what's a good way to do that professionally? Oh, well, you'll go ahead and you'll be an attorney. Yeah. So when you got to college, when did you decide, or even before that, when did you decide that that wasn't going to be your long-term path? I, uh, well, I think I am like decently intelligent. Uh, I am not a good student. <laughs> and you can, in high school and undergrad and a lot of other places, you can get by doing the bare minimum or procrastinating or kind of cramming at the last minute. Uh, I had some family friends who kind of explained how law school worked, where you can't really fall behind, where you're going to get cold called in class, where you really need to make sure that you're a true, very strong student and kind of more understanding. I think what was going to happen in law school was just like, hey, this is probably not what's right for me. And also just I think I, kind of what a lawyer was as I got older and realized what that job consisted of. Yeah. It wasn't really something that I thought was going to be a lot appealing to me. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do mm -hmm. when I was like 18, 19, 20, 21. I was really completely unsure, uh, which I think probably there's a lot of folks that age that aren't. Yeah. So kind of once I got to college, I really was just like, I have no idea what I want to do. So then after college, what was your first job? So I worked on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. Okay. Uh, I had met, uh, some folks who were looking for brokers on the floor of the American stock exchange. So I went to go work for a really small, like five person company mm -hmm. with four guys who are managing partners, managing directors of that company. And I, I interned there, uh, in the summer of 2006 and really liked them. It was really great. Uh, it was definitely your very traditional kind of finance intern. Um, where kind of you are just working really hard. Uh, the good news is I was working trading hours. So it was basically like 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., which was nice as an intern. So mm -hmm. I wasn't really doing like investment banking type hours. Mm -hmm. But that was really interesting. And working on the floor of the American Stock Exchange was definitely a cool experience. Yeah. While it wasn't as busy and crowded as it was, say, in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, it was still definitely like a cool place to say that you worked. Yeah. So I kind of went the finance route when I first came out. And when did you get into technology? What brought you there? So kind of an inevitability looking back on it. <laughs> Hindsight, I think is 2020 in this one. So my dad uh, actually worked in technology. So he was an IBM lifer until about 1991. Mm -hmm. So he'd worked at IBM for about 25 years. Wow. And then he went to go work for, and this will only sound familiar to folks who are probably 35 and up. He went to go be a founding officer at a place called Prodigy Online Services. Mm -hmm. So before AOL, there is a company called Prodigy. Mm -hmm. And Prodigy was kind of the company that brought a lot of the first places online. So Wells Fargo did their first banking portal with them. It was the first content distribution for online media that ESPN ever signed. Mayo Clinic was the mm -hmm. kind of the first place to bring that all online. So they predated AOL a little bit in terms of kind of how they did internet service providing. So he had worked in technology. Um, I have an older um, half-brother who, when he graduated, he went the engineering route and he worked in technology. And my sister, who is a little bit older than me, she had actually left finance in 2006 just when the New York tech scene was like very, very, very young and mm -hmm. went to go work for a startup. Yeah. So I had kind of three people in my family over the course of 15 years who I'd seen that. And I kind of realized the exposure that I had had to tech 
And I was kind of like, hey, this is where I think I want to go. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like these were pretty major mentors in your life that that was their experience. And you were, I'm sure, learning a lot from them along the way. Yeah. And the one thing I did know is that they all did very different things Mm -hmm. in tech. And so that's where I was really happy that I ended up in product because my brother is kind of, he's a CTO. He's not a president of a company, uh, but he was the engineering perspective. My sister is kind of a go-to-market guru. Mm -hmm. My dad was very much on kind of like the commercial partnership content side. Yeah. So it was really cool to kind of see all there. And like the one area that wasn't really touched was product. Yeah. So it's kind of cool now that I think about that, that I ended up in that one little area where no one else in the family had been. Yeah, you've got a whole company over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, now that you found a home in product, in technology, what's your favorite part of working in that space? Ooh, so twofold. And one has been a lot developed a lot sooner, like a lot more recently um, than in the past. So I think one, I mentioned earlier that I found a home in health tech. So that was the best part about my previous job, this amazing company called Force Therapeutics, where I worked for four and a half years. I mentioned before that startups have kind of like really high highs and really low lows. Yeah. And whenever I would be interviewing somebody and they would ask me, like, what's the best part about working at Force? My answer would always be like, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. There are going to be days that are really tough and you're going to be drained at the end of the day. But you're going to be able to go in and see the actual comments from patients who use your software and you're going to see the meaningful impact that it has on them. And reading that is a really quick way to recharge your battery. So that was kind of the one thing that I think was really great. And then the second thing that I've gotten really into over the past two to three years is, is just mentoring and growing teams and helping people advance their career. That's one of the things as I've gotten more senior in my career is the ability to kind of have influence, be able to give guidance to do my best to help people avoid mistakes that I may have made and kind of help them understand that and just kind of do whatever I can. Um, mentoring is not something that if you'd asked me like five to 10 years ago, if I thought that I would ever be a mentor, I would probably have been unsure and leaned toward no. But it's something I think over the past two to three years, particularly at Force, yeah. I got really into. Um, so that's, I think those are the two things that I find the most. And then product in general is interesting, especially now with chat GPT and everything that's happening with AI, I think it's a very interesting time to be in it. So you have a lot of rapidly changing ecosystems and the landscape of tech is changing rapidly. Yeah. So staying up to speed on that and kind of understanding what that's going to mean and how do you leverage these new tools and how do you understand them, particularly in healthcare, is really fascinating. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about managing teams because I have heard direct feedback from folks that report into you that you have been such an incredible mentor and leader and teacher and guide for folks that are starting off in their career and folks that are even more senior in their career. And I'm curious if you have certain manager philosophies or an approach that you look to take as you do guide teams and manage people. So first and foremost, I think if you haven't listened to the podcast with Joe, listen to that because 1000% and Joe knows this, I would not be the people leader that I am to whatever benefit that I get if it wasn't for Joe. And Joe talked about in his podcast, the ripple effect. And I thought it was something really, really smart that he said, because that's how I kind of think about that. Um, Dating all the way back to when Joe was my manager prior to Chris. Uh, as the manager of customer service, 
I think I was very frustrated in the moment and I didn't really realize a lot of the lessons that I got from Joe, but the further and further I got away from Zerve, I kind of just sat there and was like, one, I wish I had appreciated it more because he was far and on the best people manager that I directly reported into ever. Um, and I didn't realize how lucky I was in that. And I think a lot of what I took from him is always assuming the best in people and understanding kind of, he referred to it, I think, in his podcast as like capital in terms of what yeah. you built up, but understanding kind of how do you leverage and get the most out of somebody. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what I aim to try to do is I look at what where do people want to go? What are they really good at? What are their weaknesses? And how do we help facilitate and grow that? And I think I try to do that a couple of ways. One, my leadership style. I try to be vulnerable. I try to communicate effectively. I try to empower my teams. I am not a micromanager in any capacity. Uh, I And I really push your folks to manage up. And managing up, I think, oftentimes gets a very negative connotation. But managing up when done well is why people advance in their careers. Managing up, just like we talked about how you can anticipate your client needs, it's the same when talking to your manager. If you know how to effectively communicate with your manager and you can teach folks how to do that, it makes everybody look better. Because one, it allows me to empower you more to get more autonomy to do your job. You're relaying things to me that I can more succinctly communicate across the board to the executive team. And then in general, we get more responsibility thrown away. Your career develops, your career grows, and it goes along those ways. And I think just for me, the biggest adjustment where I need to, where I developed over time was not everyone is like yourself. Yeah. And I personally love brute feedback. I don't want the sandwich approach. Um, <laughs> I don't want fluffy feedback that's being told back to me. And I struggled very candidly. And I still, this is still my biggest weakness that I still work to really catch myself on from an EQ standpoint. I still can be a little bit too blunt sometimes. And because I know that's if someone said that to me, I'd be like, I'd digest it. I'd think about it. And then I figure out, do I agree with them? What parts of it do I agree with? What do I disagree with? Why is that? I just process it. But that's probably a very minority viewpoint. Most people want to be positively re-encouraged. They want to understand, hey, you're doing a good job. They probably don't just... If you only hear, hey, do this better, you don't really think, oh, am I doing anything else good? And so I think for me, that was the biggest step that I always had to take. And that's why I credit Joe, is because Joe is a far better communicator than I could ever be. And I would think through meetings that he had with me where I was fiery and had all these thoughts and opinions. And I would just sit there and talk for six minutes and Joe would listen digest it all. And then he would figure out very succinctly how to kind of read that back to me and how to get me to understand his viewpoint, how to trust the process, understand what the company was trying to do to not only just talk me off the ledge, but also get me to think about something that maybe I wasn't already considering. And that's all, that's really what I've tried to take from him. Yeah. I mean, that personalized approach is so important. We actually implemented recently a survey when new employees are joining and we have them complete this quiz essentially that tells us their languages of appreciation. So whether it's words of encouragement or public recognition or financial gains, um, everybody has their own way that they like to be recognized. And, you know, some folks really like to be publicly recognized for their good work and others don't really care. They just want to see a bonus in their paycheck. So it's really helpful to have that baseline to begin with. And then as you do start to have conversations and you understand kind of how they 
best respond to feedback that's going to make them more productive. You can, you know, tailor the way that you approach them as a manager um, and deliver feedback in a way that they're going to hear it best and respond to best. I love that idea. I had a, my girlfriend's company had a similar idea where they had it's very a product management sense, but they called it a user management guide. Like it's a user management guide for yourself, mm. but you basically publish it, and it's basically like, hey, here's how you enga- here's how you use engage with this user. Um, like here's how I like to get feedback. Here's the things that frustrate me. Here's the things that motivate me. And I think any type of approach to that, as you onboard and effectively build a really uh, positive culture, I think all those anything that you do along those lines is huge. Because not only does it help with the one-to-one relationships, but it helps with the, cr- the cross-functional dynamic. It helps people better understand it. And especially in more of the remote first world, it puts a little bit of a human on the other end of it. Yeah. Because especially in the past three years, you've seen, I think, sometimes if you're slacking with somebody or if you're on a quick call or you're jumping from Zoom to Zoom, you kind of use a little bit of that human touch. And it's nice to have something that you can fall back to and center on. Yeah, I agree. Well, you have accomplished so much in your career. I'm curious, as you've made moves and changes and made different decisions along the way, have you set personal or professional goals or milestones? I have. So I am fairly like nakedly ambitious, I would say. Like, I don't hide what my ambition is. I've always tried to kind of round that and, and match that with the fact that I am ambitious in terms of I will always advocate in what I think is in the best interest of the company. And if you do that and you're really focused on team above all and you work really hard and you put in the effort, it's going to drive career growth. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be a C-suite at a tech company yeah. by the time I was in my late 30s. Mm-hmm. And so I set that goal out. I achieved it. Um, I got there. And I think that's sometimes as people climb the ladder, you sometimes realize like, that's okay, I reached that goal, but it's not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So for me, very candidly, I was super excited. I love the company that I was working at. But then I got there and I was kind of like, well, this is not what you had pictured in your head. Um, it still felt nice. You still had that sense of accomplishment. But then it also gave you some perspective of, okay, well, what are you missing? What do you, what do you think was going to be different? What were the emotions you were trying to feel when you achieved that? And that's how I kind of worked backwards towards making a recent switch that I made to becoming a co-founder. I mean, that's great that you did that self-reflection. I feel like a lot of people do set specific goals and when they get there, it might not feel the way that they expected to feel. And yeah, it's nice to feel accomplished in the way that you were working towards. But you know, it's important to also think about what you're doing and what you're enjoying and what you're not enjoying. Um, so that self-reflection, it sounds like, really led you in a positive way where you are going to be more fulfilled. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it was great because it also, the the goal though, I think looking back on it, and this is where I've tried to always push myself on is looking back and having that reflection over time gets better because Mm -hmm. in the moment I was probably like, well, this is kind of an empty win because I'm not feeling what I thought that I would feel. And so Mm -hmm. that was probably what I was feeling six or seven months ago. But now six or seven months past, I was like, well, think about all the things that you push yourself to learn, that you push for the projects that you took on, all the things that you accomplished because you knew that you wanted to drive it there and think about everything that you learned along the way. And so I think that's one of the things I hinted at that earlier is kind of tying that back to management approach is 
progress doesn't take place a week over week. I think in one-on-ones or in check-ins, folks might be frustrated and they might be frustrated about what's currently happening, but it's more likely that you're going to see that six months back or a year when you kind of a year forward, be able to look back and to see what all that was. You got a much bigger picture. And I think for me, that's one thing that I constantly am trying to work on is to actualize that sooner. Because right? over time, I've definitely shortened that time where it was like, when I was younger, I was impatient and I didn't realize it. And then years would go by and it's like, oh, that's what that person was talking about. And now I've definitely shortened it, shortened it. But the more you can be in a moment and realize, hey, trust the process of what's going on there. I think that's been one area for me from a per- personal improvement standpoint mm-hmm. that I try to be very much focused on. Yeah. And all of that learning has contributed to the successes that you've experienced, but also helped to inform what you want to be doing every day and what you are going to feel most passionate and connected to. Absolutely. One last question. What sort of advice do you have for somebody trying to figure out what they want to do in their careers long term? So I think it depends where they are in their career. I mean, I'm going to give a little bit, I'm going to kind of hedge my bets here as I go through this question. So I can give you the answer in terms of me uh, and how I thought about it. And again, that's one of those things where you could probably take bits and pieces of it that apply to how you think and how you go about doing things. So for me, summarizing everything that we just talked about, I heard this really cheesy but accurate concept on a podcast like two months ago. And I wish I had heard this about 10 years ago because I think it would have shaped my perspective on things a little bit different. But for me, the direction that I wanted to go in and what I have taken is I for the first 15 years of my professional career, was massively obsessed with resume building. All I wanted to do was build off of my resume. And you forgot the whole other circle, going back to a Venn diagram of there's two concepts, there's resume building and there's eulogy building. And I was doing literally nothing to build on what my eulogy was. It was like, I was going to work, I was motivated on what I wanted to do, but I wasn't creating a broader impact. Yeah, I was working at a health tech company and I felt really good about the impact that we were having but I was more driven by what the resume building aspects of that were. And so I started thinking through exercises of how do we create the intersection of that Venn diagram so that there's a much broader overlap of the resume building and the eulogy building. And so for me, kind of realizing that I mentoring is really important to me, growing something from the start, having my DNA over it, and kind of being able to contribute to important causes in health tech that was kind of how I found that middle ground of figuring out, okay, this is what I want to be able to do. So I kind of went through an exercise of those things of like, how do I want to drive my career forward? Because I know that I want to be able to provide for my family in the future, but I also want to make sure that I'm actually leaving an impact and a legacy because that does matter to me. I didn't think it mattered to me 10 years ago, but now I have perspective on it and I want to kind of think through that. And that was the exercise that I went through. I would say, over the course of the end of 2022 into 2023, that was super helpful. Um, so that that would be how I think about it in terms of getting value of what you want to be able to do to make sure that you don't have that feeling of emptiness once you reach that goal. Yeah. But that was for me. Yeah, I really love that advice. I think you personally have made such a positive impact in people's lives, both on the receiving end of the product that you've helped develop, but then also the folks that you have directly worked with and managed and mentored. I know that you have changed so many people's lives through the work that you've done. So I really like the way that you described it, um, marrying both the resume building and eulogy building piece. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today, CY. This was a really insightful conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm glad it was insightful. And thanks for having me on. Go to unchartedcareers.com if you're interested in one-on-one career coaching or are looking to learn more about uncharted careers and my coaching approach. Thanks for listening.